Welcome to another episode of the Presbyterian and Reformed Churchmen. I'm Pastor George. Uh, This is a podcast with ruling elders for ruling elders where we explore connecting uh, work as a ruling elder to ministry and ministry to work. The ruling elder I'm interviewing today, his name is Rich Lino, and he is uh, a Marine. And I know, I know, there's no such thing as former Marine. So he is, he is still a Marine. He's wearing a Mandalorian shirt, or is it? Is that a PCA shirt? It's Rich, maybe PCA stand logo. up and let us. Yeah. Okay, it's a, yeah. it's the PCA, it's PCA logo. logo. And so, if you're a Star Wars fan, then this is the way. Uh, but I've been wanting to interview Rich uh, as one of the first interviews. Rich is the. Uh, I don't know if moderator is the right word, but of a, a of a private Facebook group, not secret, but private for ruling elders and teaching elders in the PCA where we have discussions. And uh, I know he says it's not really a moderated group. He's just kind of the admin for it. And we, we have all kinds of discussions. But I found Rich to be a very encouraging guy, a very smart guy. It's almost as if he has a seminary degree. Uh, and he just has a, a heart for ruling elders to be informed, involved, and churchmen. And then what I what I came to find out is he really has a shepherd's heart, which is what we would want all ruling and teaching elders to have. And so, Rich, thanks for being on. Uh, maybe you could tell us where you're from, what church you serve at, and some of that beginning intro information that our listeners will like to hear. Sure, and just uh, just so you know, I do have a, sem- uh, a seminary degree from New Geneva, so maybe that's why you can you can thank Dominic Aquila yes, New Geneva well, in terms of some of my knowledge. But uh, so where I'm no, from, that's awesome. Wait, 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 yeah. wait, stop there. Wait a minute. Was that is that a, an MA and MDiv? Uh, a it's an MA, and I I can't remember if it's Christian Ministries. I mean, I. Uh, you know, you get one ma- you get mm-hmm. one or two master's degrees, and after a while, it's like, so it's it's useful. It was very useful. Well, and that makes having sense. Having read a lot of theology and thought I had a good apprehension of it, actually studying it for several years because it took me a lot of time. You know, uh, being a father and still working to just achieve kind of half an MDiv, including the Greek and and that sort of thing, and all the exegesis. But uh, that that definitely helps. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So, where where are you? Where and what what church do you serve at? So, where I'm from, uh, I'm from nowhere. And originally, having been an Air Force brat, uh, and then going in the Marine Corps at, at age 22, I moved all over the place, and then finally settled down in Quantico, Virginia, having spent about half my uh, military career uh, in Quantico, the crossroads of the Marine Corps, uh, and and so I started attending Hope of Christ Church in Stafford, Virginia when I, I got here. It was a mission church of the James River Presbytery at the time, uh, a kind of a plant from New Life in Christ, which I had attended from 2003 to 2005 when I was at Quantico prior to uh, going to Okinawa. And then um, we particularized in 2010, and I've been a ruling elder since then in uh in, in uh, the Stafford, Virginia area, really kind of right next to Quantico. So it's uh, we have a lot of military folks in this area in general, just being close to D.C. and all the military and other government uh, people around here. Wow, wow. So how far will that be from next year's General Assembly? I think it's in Virginia. Uh, oh, 2024 GA. It's about, uh, Yeah. let's see, it's about trying to do i go almost by exit numbers 
So if Stafford's exit <laughs> yes. 140, then uh, or exit yeah around the the center of Stafford, uh, around 70 exit 75 ish is about uh, Richmond. So I don't know 60 70 miles. It's actually faster to get to Richmond than DC, even though it's a little further just because of the amount of traffic going in DC. Yeah, yeah. Well, it'll be great. So I'm in North Carolina, um, and uh, I'm looking forward to a GA being driving distance since. Um, yeah, me too. Since I've been here. <laughs> yes. So uh, actually, I was uh, in college. I went into officer candidate school with the Marine Corps. Oh. I did uh, one cool. summer. I didn't know that. <laughs> yes. You never told me that. When? What well, year were you there? I, you know, it. Uh, I was there in '95, maybe. Oh, okay. You're young. <laughs> I know the the gray. Uh, being a pastor ages you quick. So. Yeah, I, I just I did I was in the officer candidate program where you go two summers and then mm-hmm. you you go to um, and I only went the one summer oh, and then okay. I, I yeah. got out it, and so that that's why I don't uh, talk about it because I'm not proud of it but the Lord used it um, but uh, I love the obstacle courses and stuff actually yeah in <laughs> retrospect the, uh, the, I the mental wonder how I did all that stuff now that I'm older but yeah all right but you're a runner right. Yeah, I still run. I still am able to run um, about, uh, I don't know, 20, 20 some odd miles per, per week. Just uh, um, I'm still able to do that six miles on Tuesdays, Thursdays and Saturdays and then only five miles on Sunday because it's a day of rest. <laughs> yeah, well, that's great. Yeah. The, yes, absolutely. And so uh, you are at a church plant that's particularized, so you're mm-hmm. you're at a, a, a church, you're a ruling elder. How long have you been? What's your PCA background and history? Uh, so uh, I I was um, I grew up Roman Catholic, and then when I um, when I went off to college, well, just to back up a little bit, the the Roman Catholic church that we attended in Texas when my dad got stationed in Fort Worth, which was then Carswell Air Force Base. Uh, it, it be the uh, priest there was part of the charismatic revival or whatever you want to call it. Like you know how a lot oh, of yes. places became charismatic in in the uh, 20th century. And so when we moved there in 1980, he was part of that. Um, I learned to, I actually spoke in tongues at a at a Catholic church at a Bible study there. At least I thought I did. Um, and um, and so I was really kind of thinking that that being um, you know, a Christian was more about just kind of, uh, I don't know, being motivated or being excited about your Christian faith. And I thought the Reformation had kind of freed people from, um, you know, I don't know how to describe it, other, you know, from being just kind of traditional, so to speak. And so when I went off yeah. to college, I started attending a Catholic church there. I, I played guitar there and it was a little bit sporadic uh, after my freshman year. And then going in my first four years at Camp Lejeune, uh, North Carolina, I didn't really attend church or more like three years. And so then when I um, went off to the Naval Postgraduate School, I decided I would, um, I needed to get back to church. I needed to, you know, I always felt like um, I needed to, you know, that the Lord was calling me back to something and ended up attending a Campbellite church in uh, Monterey or near Monterey where I went to the Naval Postgraduate School from 94 Mm. to 96 met my wife there got married got immersed at that church and um and then (laughs) and then when we moved off to um 
uh, back to Quantico in 96 when I got transferred there, uh, we started looking for, you know, a church that kind of matched the experience we had gone through. And so we ended up in this non-denominational church that was kind of at, at the time a little bit of a lull from sort of charismatic, um, I don't know how to describe it, but I don't want, I guess, craziness. Hopefully it's not offensive to people who are listening, but, you know, it, the things got a little uh, more, more um animated the later we were there were you know people just standing up and prophesying or people running through the the aisles and stuff like that but um i went i did the promise keepers thing and all that other stuff and meanwhile around 97 as i was driving on quantico i heard uh just caught on the christian radio station the tail end of R.C. Sproul talking about Roman Catholicism. And I was like, man, this is uh-huh. really interesting because, you know, I hadn't really understood my uh, my tradition that well. In fact, I had never really kind of, if you will, repudiated or turned away from saying being Roman Catholic because as far as I, I was concerned, just participating in the church I was at had the same feel as sort of the charismatic experience I had come out of when I lived in Texas for six years prior to going off to college. And so um, it was then I, I ended up, you know, calling up the number and said, hey, I'd like to buy this tape series on on um, Roman Catholicism just so I can listen to it. And they said, well, here, this, this includes Faith Alone as well. So I got the book Faith Alone. Uh. And then I had to go on a TAD trip. It's like a business trip to Okinawa. And I ended up reading uh, Faith Alone on the plane trip to Okinawa. And I was just like, my mind was blown. It was like, I I kind of, <laughs> I felt like I understood the gospel for the first time. And so, you know, that was, it was like everything fell into place because I had been exposed to the scriptures my entire life. Um, but I, it didn't really fall into place. It was almost like everything fell into place as to, you know, Abraham and everything else. And, uh, and so I became, you know, a really uh, avid supporter of Ligonier Ministries, got Table Talk, Tape of the Month, back when it was called Tape of the Month. Now I forget what the program is. But um, I ended up, uh, uh, you know, even figuring out, oh, he's a Calvinist? Like, that's crazy. I'd never thought, like, I would be attracted to something like Calvinism and then I thought well if RC believes in it I'll give it a try and then I became kind of cage stage for a while but it took me Mm -hmm. probably a year after that to where I was just kind of fed up with um, you know the um, things going on in the church you know even people who were um, I, I had also at the time read I don't know if you remember Hank Hanegraaff when he was really big Bible answer man. I think he's still mm-hmm. on the air, but sure. he had a book on the, uh, the against all of the word of faith stuff, and I read that, and then I brought up to people at the church I was attending, like, have you heard about some of the stuff that Kenneth Copeland and all these other people believe? And 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 they were like, hey, he's a good guy, you know, Kenneth Copeland. I said, well, I think it's time for me to find another church, and so I ended up looking. I ended up going to one PCA church. Um, up in uh, Woodbridge, which is not too far away from Quantico. That was actually Jim Spurgeon's church. Uh, I I didn't end up attending there because uh, I know this is kind of one of those weird things. Well, it's probably not weird to a lot of people, but at the time it was a little bit 
too hard of a landing from kind of dynamic worship to kind of more traditional worship. Um, although mm-hmm. Jim ended up being uh, my Greek instructor and a number of other instructors for New Geneva. He's a, a very godly man, and uh, I, I think he's retired now. But um, uh, we ended up going to Harvester up in Springfield, which was a little bit of a further drive um, in Haddle. It was a it, it was a bigger church, and Ron Bossom was the pastor there. He was actually uh, the first day I met him there he mentioned that he I, I brought up R.C. Spruill as being attracted to the PCA and he he had actually been the man who had helped examine R.C. when he came into the PCA so I was like okay I'm okay wow. with this guy and so yeah his, <laughs> it was we were there for about a year before we um uh PCS or moved to Camp Pendleton and there were no PCA churches in in the area we ended up settling which is the Temecula Valley um, and so we ended up attending an OPC church there. Eric Landry, actually the, the editor of um, uh, Modern Reformation, he ended up planting a church in that Temecula area. And so, but that was, that was after we had already gotten there. But that's sort uh. of when I began my kind of Presbyterian reform journey uh, with three years in the OPC. Um, I ended up coming back and joining a PCA church down in uh, Fredericksburg new life in Christ. And then, uh, three years in Okinawa, there were no reformed churches there yet and ended up attending a Southern Baptist church for the three years, uh, 05 to 08 that I was in Okinawa. But, you know, with those breaks, I've been PCA since. Yeah. Wow. So that's some, that's some shift to go from charismatic Catholic to OPC, uh, then to the PCA. And, you know, it's funny, not many people know about the charismatic Catholic movement. I grew up Catholic and went to Catholic schools all the way through high school. And uh, one of the priests at our high school was charismatic. And yeah, so I, I supposedly spoke in tongues also. It's pretty much swept um, every tradition. It's there's there's a good book. I, I wish I had it handy, but it really does show like the how the latter rain movement and a lot of the other things have just kind of permeated so much of even worship culture and some of the things that are pretty common in a lot of churches that we just don't think about. Even, you know, uh, not to get too long into the debates about whether things should be minister led or the other things, but a lot of that, you know, kind of, uh, you know, uh, worship teams, so to speak, comes from those movements. And so, you know, anyway, it's, it, it, right. it, it did yeah. permeate quite a bit. I was actually, I was actually reflecting on that a little bit and wondering how long we'll see, um, what, what, will reflect in the long term about the fruit of movements and of those sorts in terms of how durable they are and probably it's going to take us you know decades of reflection to realize that uh, some things that we thought were necessary for reformed churches to grow might have been you know things that ended up leading to you know less health not 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 that some of the things that you know sometimes the reformed church does need to be reminded to be you know to not be kind of ensconced in um i don't know just things that they're doing for the sake of doing it but um i think you know what i mean in terms of just some no stuff I, that we I do think that's... And, and and i think that those those things are very permeating because you see that all around you and then you see all the fruit around you and then be, uh, it was interesting because um uh sorry i'm going to my i tend to be kind of uh you know like a Keep little going. bit uh stream of consciousness in my thinking i talk while i think but um one of the that that whole paper by chris hutchinson actually uh about uh you know whether or not ministers should be leading in worship 
one of the things I, I read it and I went ahead and read the OPC paper and it's interesting that I think one of the things that prompted that OPC um, paper was kind of the new life movement which in part was led by a lot of that kind of introduction into and concern about some of the charismatic stuff that was coming to the OPC but I don't want to go in that direction because that's not what we're talking about but it's a uh, it's an interesting <laughs> history. no but there's so much you hope like I you opened up a whole bunch of, of potential topics so I, I I do think that would be a great thing to explore more the the concept and idea of movements and I'm just even thinking you know, in the in the '90s and early 2000s, with the emergent church and the seeker-friendly movement, it's you know they, these were guys telling us this is how we need to do ministry, mm-hmm. and now they're the same guys that are deconstructing and saying this is what it really is, yeah. and how how the PCA has just been um, not that we're not uh, affected by these and they don't creep in, but like ordinary means of grace, worship, and ministry just really does protect against this stuff if you're willing to see the beauty and again just the the ordin the regular and the ordinary ways that god works both in in worship and in mission uh and so i, I yeah. yeah if you do work i've been on doing that this long that, enough I think. I think in terms of just being really you know i i i, I kind of did a lot of music and in high school I learned to play the guitar from a a nun and I've always been part of you know uh, you know music ministry so to speak but one of the things I've noticed just being parts of different churches uh, in terms of even the the churches that felt like hey the only way we're going to reach the youth is through or the younger generation is through kind of better music and that was part of the church that I attended in Monterey uh, area they were actually I've never been in a church that had better musicians since then but but um, the uh, the thing that I realized back then, even early on, and, and I've seen that the case, is that there's all of these kind of movements, like uh, I guess if you want to call them fads, and they, they kind of last for maybe a couple years, sometimes, you know, maybe five five or six years, but then they fizzle out, you know, um, Prayer of Jabez, you know, 40 Days of Purpose, uh, the per- you know, all those things that, you, you know, some of these things you don't even hear about anymore, or Promise Keepers Movement, all those things. And so um, even within the Reformed churches, uh, it seemed for, for a time Federal Vision was taking fire, and it's still out there. Um, you know, I don't want to bring up other ones because other people on there are going to be offended if I mention things like theonomy or something like that. <laughs> but, um, but, but uh, you know, we just, you know, I think that if you just kind of wait out sometimes, you realize some of these things don't last very long. But the thing that attracts me to the center of reform theology is having grown up in... Um, especially uh, the kind of the the burden that you have as a charismatic believer of kind of having this mm. this blessing, so to speak, of feeling like you're going to be healed from your sin, uh, that you're going to, you know, you're going to go into worship, you're going to be able to kind of finally let go, the Spirit's going to be able to do some sort of powerful work mm. in your heart, and everything's going to go away, um, all of the temptation you're feeling, um, even when you're married to a beautiful woman, all that's going to disappear and then you're going to, you know, you're going to exit church and you're going to you're going to be healed of that and become kind of like a sort of almost sinless in those areas. And I think that, um, you know, that's what kind of is always, you know, the heart of 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 where the reformed um, what the reformed faith 
teaches biblically is just kind of grounding you in in justification as well as our union with Christ that um, produces um, you know our our ability to battle against the flesh and so that's kind of for me been been the thing and all all these other things that all these other movements that tend to distract from them as to what's important in the Christian life they just don't have the energy to sustain a Christian in the long run and so those things end up you know, becoming very popular, but I think people end up getting burned out in the long run by them. Yeah, you know, I, I, a few episodes ago, I interviewed uh, M.D. Perkins, who's with the American Family Association, and uh, really, he wrote a book called Dangerous Affirmations on on this whole Side B mm. movement, but I was just recounting to him how part of my faith journey was coming forward at a Ray Bolts concert in the late eighties, if you remember Ray Bolts, yeah. uh, the watch the lamb guy and stuff. And, uh, you know, in, in, in this millennia, he left his wife and he's, he's gay, you know, he's, I don't know if he's married to a guy, but basically what he said was exactly what you just said. It was like, he tried to gut it out for 20 years with these promises that, uh, if he just prayed hard enough and believed hard enough that, uh, all sinful desires will just go away. And in the meantime, he's got a beautiful wife and beautiful kids. And so he was able to like have a family and have, uh, you know, the quote unquote good life. But because he, he built his theology on, on bad theology or his theology was bad. It gave him a wrong view of mortification in the Christian life. And, uh, and and he's apostatized, you know. Yeah, I agree. um, I mean, I think that that's one of the things, too, is that we often kind of paint as if the church has been getting certain things wrong for, you know, like decades or something, rather than realizing, no, there's, there's the, the, um, the uh, I guess the, the testimony of kind of solid theology is usually a pretty small percentage of what's really big and popular out there and what's been very big and popular right. out there are not kind of biblical theology and and it's not like you know all those things the promise keepers movement all of the the things even uh the exodus international they were all variations on the same theme of you know kind of uh wesleyan slash um, pentecostal you know perfectionism and Holiness. so you yeah. know I, I was i was uh i was envious of all the stories of people being released from sin and all those other things because it wasn't working for me and um and i think that we need to we need you know like i was even reflecting on the fact that uh you know often you hear about so you know the british people or some some theologian will say oh that's a very american concern because they're so they're there's such a a a, a huge um uh, momentum in the direction of everybody agreeing in the mainstream or the, 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 the big group think there that they don't even notice that there are small voices actually who bother to deal with things like inerrancy in their own areas. And so I think we need to stop painting, uh, especially in our own uh, area, our, our own kind of communion sometimes thinking, well, the church got that wrong. Let's, let's, let's point out where the errors were and point out where... Um, where where parts of the church got things right rather than you know painting everybody as following the same um the same movements because i was part of those movements i was and and i found i found solace in the pca i found i found 
rescue from that they weren't they weren't promoting that when i came to the into the pci i, I found i tra found true uh, understanding that i was um you know that i was saved on the imputed righteousness of christ i found you know uh that that my Amen. sin struggles were not unusual and so this is back in the late 90s this isn't something that you know uh the pca notes needs to go back and repent of in the way that it treated sin strugglers it's it it did a good job in terms of helping helping me and feeling you know because and i totally relate to people who are who are uh, battling against the flesh on a daily basis that's that's the experience of christian believers yeah yeah so to to like i said you said so many things i want to touch on uh the rc sprawl radio ministry i i think that's a lot of our testimonies into reformed theology came through radio ministry mm. and uh i mean my own was it started with i think he's like a gateway drug into the into the reformed world but but john macarthur and uh you know, you start learning Reformed doctrine and Reformed theology, and you don't even know what you're learning. You don't realize you're learning Calvinism mm -hmm. right off the bat. And then as you as you just start, like you said, it just kind of opens your eyes to so much. And then so my uncle then turned me on. He was like, well, you like McCarthy? You got to listen to Sproul. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was down in Florida, so I've been to, I don't know, six or seven Ligonier conferences. And, and just what a great thing Ligonier Ministries has yeah, been. absolutely. Um, just in the world. And uh, so radio ministry is, is such a great uh, thing. I think Brad Isbell, when I had him on last episode, he said the same thing. It was kind of listening to MacArthur that that brought him in. Um, so you, uh, are you, you are retired from the Marines? Is that is that the right, right lingo? And yeah. Is that, okay. I retired. What year was that? 2011. Okay. So yeah. for, for, man, you're, you don't look, you don't look old. How old are you? 54. In your 50s? Mm -hmm. Yeah, good. Okay. So uh, you're not that much older than me, by the way. But I know. I would just when anyway. he said 95, I was like, okay, he's definitely... Because I, I, I got commissioned in 90, so I was done okay. with all that. Other yeah, stuff. well, I'm, 40, I'm 48, so... Yeah. Uh, and actually, I think it was 96, so just I was... <laughs> I bet. You know, so... And you, you spent some time in the Middle East, did you? Uh, I spent... Uh, I, 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 I deployed for Operation Iraqi Freedom 1. The, the first part of the war from about, um, I don't know, uh, I can't remember when I got there. It was around uh, the beginning of or beginning of 2003 through about May of 2003. Wow. Well, I mean, that's 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 early in it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And actually, yeah, it was, that, you know, it was the uh, uh, relative, I guess, if you want to say any talk about war being easy at all, it was actually, you know, I, if you recall, things got rolled up pretty quickly. I mean, there was, there. It, well, on Nazaria was pretty bloody. There was some resistance there. It, it, you have to, I don't want to talk about that to a lo, lo, large extent in terms of what precipitated uh -huh. some of the resistance there in terms of um, um, that that made it pretty tough. But generally speaking, that wasn't that difficult. In fact, everything got wrapped up pretty quickly. And then, you know, at the time, uh, you know, Actually, the Marines thought, oh, hey, we're not really kind of the, uh, we've never been sort of the, the, the phase four. Like, we go in there, do the operation. The Army's the one that kind of does the the long-term stuff. But, of course, you know, the history from that was different in terms of just, at that point, a lot of mistakes made strategically. You can read 
Mattis's book on some, you know, really huge strategic mistakes uh, that led to a lot of things being a lot worse later on. But I, I never experienced much of that. In fact, I um, I got to go up into, you know, we went once everything was cleared out, uh, flew up to see the forward location where some of my Marines were. And I was a commo. I don't want to make it sound like I was out there at the tip of the spear, so to speak. So we were... Um, I uh, had Marines up there in, uh, in on, I'm, I forget, uh, Adawania, and it was actually like uh, several miles away from Babylon. And so I got to go up to mm. Babylon and take some pictures there and um, and actually go up to one of Saddam's palaces. And I got a picture of myself like in, in one of his bathtubs. It's kind of cool. <laughs> man well first thanks for for your service and uh willingness to do that and um so i i don't know if you remember but uh we've online a couple of years ago i was saying so my grandparents both sides of family emigrated from uh syria that's cool um yeah and so i i i grew up melkite catholic which oh, okay. is yeah so it's most people don't know what that what that is, but you know the Catholic Church has different rites right, and right. different traditions, and uh, the Melkite Catholics almost left with with the Orthodox Church, hmm. you know, a thousand plus years ago, and and they didn't, but they were able to retain a lot of their their heritage. Uh, and so I, I grew up with my grandparents, with the food, with the people. You know, the only Christianity in that part of the world was Catholicism for a long time, yeah. is my understanding. I'm curious if you, if you uh, came across uh, Christians. I didn't come across over them, there. although I grew up. So when my dad moved to, um, uh, when our family moved to Fort Worth in 1980, the uh, family across the street from us was actually the father was uh, his family had been in Palestine for generations, and they were Catholic. Um, there was a huge mm. Christian population in Jerusalem, like 50% Christian, um, about 50%-ish Muslim. I mean, of course, there was, well, it couldn't be 50% each because there's about 3% Jewish, but historically in that region, and um, of course, it's a lot, a lot of that changed. A lot of Palestinians ended up in Jordan, but um, I got to experience a lot of kind of Arabic culture because my best friend across the street, he was my age or a year younger than me, and I used to, he was my best friend for a number of years while I lived in Texas, and so um, uh, he, had, the the father Samir, had married a, an American wife, but um, they still had all these friends that would come over, and they would have uh, great Arabic food, and um, it was it was really cool. Um, in fact, at the time, you know, Arab or the Christians and Muslims got along a lot. Of, they had been like, um, I guess, yep. friends for centuries. Uh, a lot of stuff. A lot of people don't realize that some of the, I guess, things just kind of really got worse a lot in like really a lot from the 1950s on in terms of just getting, I guess, uh, Arab Muslims more fired up about, you know, sort of the grievances and things like that. And then, of course, geopolitically, things got worse and worse. But, you know, for the most part, there had been relatively decent uh, relationships. And it's interesting because I remember seeing uh, uh, 
Samir, Mr. Tarsha, I used to call him growing up because he was my dad's age. But years later, I saw him after I'd moved away and come back. And he talked about even some of the things that had happened since 2001 and since that, that these friendships that he had maintained for his entire life were starting to kind of unravel. It was really interesting mm. just how how the whole, wow. you know, um, thing with everything going on had pushed um, the kind of the Muslim friends that he had away from him because I used to see them all the time and, and some of their kids as well but uh, anyway you keep yeah. asking me these so, questions and I go down these rabbit trails well I love it I uh, you're, you're easy to listen to Rich so that, thanks it's good the uh, what you know so you are my observation of you on the forums is uh, you're reasonable common sense <laughs> And I, and I recognize, I'm always like, surprised so I, when people do that. Cause I, I think of myself as like, you know, like, Oh man, I really kind of get got, was hard on that guy or something like that. And then somebody comes, well, hey, sometimes you feel are like, you're, you're like decent. And I'm like, I don't feel that way at all. I just, I sometimes feel like I'm just really too hard on some people. I feel like, so, so, sometimes you're kind of hard, but then you soften it up and then, you know, there's so strength is often. Uh, true strength is often observed in, um, in when kindness is shown. And so, uh, but so I was, I was a mechanical engineer for a number of years. I worked for Procter and Gamble. So very That's much cool. into, yeah, bi- business practices, high performance work systems. Um, and obviously the military like dwarfs corporate America in, in doing things uh, at least in an order, in an orderly way or, or by protocol. Um, how, how has your military, background and service helped you in the church because i found my my corporate experience had helped has helped helped me be i was a ruling elder longer than i've been a teaching elder and so uh but but anyway and i like i said i found some of that corporate background was helpful not that we want to corporatize the church i'm just curious if you found the same thing with your military background yeah i think that um well for one thing i think the marine corps really instills uh you know, a real strong sense of what, you know, that you take care of people. Um, so there's a lot of good general revelation kind of stuff or a lot of, I guess, light in nature stuff in terms of how you take care of people and, um, you know, not the, the strict division to where um, superiors are acting like they're, you know, better than others. You, you, you eat, you let the, you let the young guys eat before you get to eat and things like that. So there's that sense that, you know, you take care of your people. Um, in fact, uh, if you've never read it, the flags, flag of our fathers is just really, just a really powerful book in terms of showing the, the care that, um, Marine leaders are instilled in terms of how they take care of their people and the, the, the bonds that are formed and that sort of thing. Um, I think that that was good in terms of just maturing me as a person in terms of, you know, the, um, especially I think the idea that you, you just kind of, um, you, you, you stick things out. You, you also don't, um, beat around the bush. You don't, uh, get things done by being passive aggressive. Um, and I think in, in the Marine Corps, especially, we tend to be a little bit more straight shooter rather than kind of eschewing, I guess, politics, so to speak. The one thing right. I think that um, I saw when our session was first formed is that there is also a danger in terms of having a military mindset for the church because it's not yes. um, the, 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 the authority that you have is not, um, is not one of the sword. You can't, 
you can't treat discipline as non-judicial punishment. You know, I've been, I've had the authority to get have Marines confined or even got people with dishonorable discharges, which is equivalent to like a felony conviction. So, you know, you, you don't, you don't, you know, there, I remember early on when we were dealing with the discipline case, um, we, I, I was almost at the point, I had to remind some of the guys, it's like, look, that we're going to get, we can't treat this guy when he's repenting as if he's like on NJP at this point. This is not what we're doing. We're not, we're yeah. not punishing him. Um, we're trying to restore him. And, it, and so I think that that can be a liability where people don't, if you're not studying and kind of really reflecting on what it is to be an elder, then you can have the wrong model of how, what it is you're about um, in terms of trying to be kind of a, a leader within the, the, the spiritual community that shows what it looks like to be a Christian, to show what it looks like to serve and to, um, that the decisions you're making are not intended to just kind of say, well, this is what the session said, but really to, you know, kind of model for them and to, to, you know, to protect them obviously from bad teaching, but also to, you know, really to instill in them what it is to be, um, Christian and what it is to, um, you know, follow after Christ and, and kind of modeling the seriousness that you have for those things, not for the sake of saying, well, because the rules say this, but because this is, this is, you know, Christ is worth following and this is why we do these things. Hopefully that makes sense. Oh, that's so, that's so, yeah, absolutely. Cause I found the same thing from bringing the business world, uh, mm-hmm. or for coming from yeah. the business world. And often, you know, if, if people in your organization, particularly, you know, Fortune 500 companies, like they're not on board with the vision. You know, it's it's the whole get off the bus thing. Right. Um, good to great kind of mentality. And uh, you just can't have that in the church. Like, so oftentimes in the church, we can have a goal of where we, we want to mm-hmm. bring the church by the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and then you view somebody as like uh, like a roadblock to accomplishing that. What I've learned is, they're not a roadblock. They're the ministry. Right. <laughs> We're right. all ministry. Yeah. We, you know, the goal, the goal is not to get them off the bus. The goal is to see and a disciple and see the Lord sanctify them as the Lord sanctifying you. And, and it, it's just a different mindset. Uh, yeah. And I think that you have to have a really long view of those things. And I think the older I get, um, when I was, when I was first reformed, I was like, I was very intense. I'm still a pretty intense person. <laughs> But um, yes, you are. I was I was really intense. In fact, when I one of the things that helped soften me was I spent three years in Okinawa in a in a Baptist church that was very just like if you wanted to recount all the things that you could be angry about in terms of just the way people do things and you know even just underhanded. Uh, things that are not appropriate for Christians. I was dealing with some of those things, and I and and some of it had to do with just the immaturity or you know people trying to do right. And I was I found myself just kind of angry at people rather than loving them, if that makes sense. And so totally um, yes. through a process of you know even uh, I I I at least convinced myself that I was helping them, even my anger for them. And it took me a long time to realize that I you know, that these are not Arminians, these are not Baptists, these are Christians that are in need of, you know, my care and love. And I ended up leading a Bible study and eventually through um, 
the fact that the pastor who had promised to be there longer left early, um, I ended up filling the pulpit for like the last seven months that I was there and really kind of went through the experience of having people talk about being behind my back and all the the burden for that and having to 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 love and to have concern for people and and what I've noticed what I've I've come to realize is that you know you just you have to be you have to be patient with a lot of people you know there are certain people you need to rebuke but certain people need to um, you need to give it time to work things out you know uh, we're not you know like as much as we have um kind of like a skewer revivalist mindset where somebody makes a decision and suddenly they're they're followers of Christ and everything's good, right? Uh, we realize that that's not the way it is in our own sin struggles, <laughs> much less the way they're going to mature. And even I was telling um, my friend Leonard yesterday, we were reflecting on it because they're going through such grief right now. We all are at the death of his daughter, but you know, grief's the same way. You you could you can say certain things or convince yourself of certain things at a funeral and saying I've accepted these things, and then but grief is like even one of those things that takes time. You know, you're never going to be done with it. You can't make you can you can actually follow in faith at a certain time, like anything, and then darkness comes around you, and then you wonder. Was I serious about that promise I made about grief or whatever it is? You know what I'm saying? Everything's mm-hmm. kind of like that in the Christian walk. It's 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 a a long process of of growth and maturity. And um, some people are very frustrating. Some people are very um, slow to kind of follow in certain directions. You know, um, some people are like, well, if they're if they won't baptize their kids, we need to kick them to the curb or something like that. I'm like, hey. You know, it may be a sin that they're not baptizing their kids, but I mean, like over time, what I've seen is a lot of people end up doing it because they're they're worn down, you know, and eventually they they see it because they've they've heard it a, a million times. So I think that's well, just my next... attitude towards the sheep in general is just kind of one of of kind of like you know a little bit of frustration, sort of like um, watching people grow and the things that they do and not and not not worrying too much on the, in the short term about how things are going to work out, if that makes sense. Yes. And, and, and honestly, it takes experience and it takes growth and maturity to see that, you know, again, coming from type A driven um, corporate or military world, you want results. And, uh, but to watch the spirit work in somebody over a process and, and to see them be sanctified is beautiful. And then it gives you hope for the next case, you know, mm-hmm. and I remember, so I was a ruling elder and, uh, I was, we had an administrative committee at my church in, in Florida and eventually they, uh, they end up hiring me to be the executive pastor. And, um, I just remember some member like accosted me right before, right before worship, I was heading up to do the call to worship and they just start yelling at me about some silly thing because they viewed me as a roadblock and it's like seconds before worship and and that that angered me and afterwards I was talking to other elders about how we're going to deal with this person and this one elder who I he's been such a great mentor to me he's a he's an older gentleman um wealthy and uh very business minded and he so I'm talking to him on the phone and he just said George how are you loving your brother and he said his name 
And he said, that, that's, you, that's the question for you in this is how you're going to be able to love this. And I'm like, love them. Like I wanted to squash them, you know? <laughs> and yeah. at the same time, I was reading um, Sinclair Ferguson's book, Devoted to God, hmm. which if, if you've never heard of that, that was the book he wrote right after he wrote um, The Whole Christ, which The Whole Christ is just an awesome yeah. work he did on legalism and antinomianism. The follow-up to that is De- Devoted to God. It was such a beautiful book on sanctification, I think. Mm-hmm. And what what it, I, I got to this page right in that in the midst of that, which was talking about exasperation and how exasperation is a sin. Right. And we often can couch it in like, I don't suffer fools lightly. I'm a straight shooter, right. and right. I'm not gonna and I'm gonna tell this person. And what Ferguson said was, when we're exasperated. Most of the time, it's we're not exasperated at the person. We're exasperated at the God who superintends all things in mm-hmm. our life for bringing that situation to us. Yeah. And that was just convicting, you know. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, the, um, you know, you, 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 I know you preach at your church, and that I think is uh, most ruling elders will probably have the opportunity to teach. I don't think a lot of ruling elders have the opportunity to preach. You have a seminary background. What, uh, as I as I look at my own life, and when I was a ruling elder, I really thought, should I go into full time uh, teaching elder ordained ministry? And so I started studying at Knox Theological Seminary, which was in South Florida, out of uh, Coral Ridge. But I really said maybe, maybe the Lord is 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 going to use me as a ruling elder. And I don't need to be come on staff at a church, and that's a better way to serve the church. And it took me about ten years to figure that out. Uh, eventually, I did come on staff and get ordained as a TE. How have you thought through that? Because you certainly can be ordained as a teaching elder, and you do preach. You do obviously have the gift of teaching. You uh, have a shepherd's heart, and so how have you thought through those kinds of decisions? Yeah, well, it all came down to dollars and cents for me. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, uh, you know, that's an that's an interesting question because I uh, I remember coming back from Okinawa and having um, you know filled the pulpit for a while, and then you know thinking, I wonder if I'm being called to do this more regularly. And 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 Doug Kittredge, who was the pastor at New Life, you know, kind of said, Hey, you should start attending. Um, seminary classes, and he encouraged me to start preaching occasionally at New Life as well. Um, and mm. so I kind of went with sort of an open mind towards it. Even thought maybe I would go the associate pastor route at something at some point. I think um, I don't know how to describe it other than uh, it. Just it's 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 hard to say that maybe I never really felt the really strong internal call or or felt like maybe if an if if something presented itself as a need and i think more than anything what i realized was what was more needful for uh our church and maybe just the church i'm part of is for me to be in a continue to be a ruling elder if that makes sense like that i'm serving Mm -hmm. the church best in my capacity as a ruling elder um there's just not uh you know, enough reason for me to downgrade and become a TE, you know? <laughs> I hear you, man. I'm kidding. I one of Sometimes our, uh, I wonder one if of I'm our a... ruling elder friends, Bob Rumbaugh, just got recently ordained and 
you know, he came up and started talking to me and I said, Hey, I'm not hanging out with you anymore. You're, you're a TE now, you know, and that sort of thing. But no, it's, uh, <laughs> I, I, I obviously have a lot of respect for the things that everybody does. It's just, I think that, you know, we, we talk about RE participation all the time as a, a, a problem. And I figure, well, what would it, what would it, be a value what what's of more value right now not that i'm some sort of you know tremendous gift uh that i think oh i can't remove myself from that you know but i just felt like that was the best thing for me to continue now will circum may circumstances change it's possible i just don't see it right now yeah well and, and i love how you said the internal call because that's again i wrestled through that for 10 years and i uh, I loved my role mm. as a ruling elder and, and how, uh, I mean, I was very valued at my last church in that role, both by the congregation and by the pastors. And it just, once the Lord called me into a position at the church is when I said, okay, well, if I'm going to be on staff and, uh, you know, that, that might make, that makes better sense. And then he's made me a senior pastor here in North Carolina, which there's, providential circumstances to bring that about and so there's definitely a, a plan like it's god's mm-hmm. work and plan and then there's it's the revealing of that right what about um what would you say about ruling elders uh going to seminary as, as you did like how like or taking classes or uh if not that route then like do you advise additional studies or, or private yeah, independence Yeah, I think study. that, you know, honestly, uh, an elder should be a continuous learner, just given the things that are going on. I was always kind of attracted to kind of, I guess it was just that, you know, prior to um, prior to becoming Reformed, I, I always wondered why would anybody spend any time reading theology? And then once I, once I kind of became animated about the gospel, I was like, well, this is a really interesting topic. I mean, like even things like philosophy and history that used to bore me, it just more and more to see how these things are, how everything around you is kind of coming at you and trying to understand those just so that you're able to more effectively, you know, be a, of use to others and that sort of thing. So um, I think that, um, you know, elders should be regular, re- regularly reading, um, ruling elders, um, not just teaching elders. Um, I think a lot of uh, ruling elders depend on their, their teaching elders to really kind of be the, the theologically informed ones. And there's not, there's nothing wrong. I, we obviously want the teaching elders to be informed and not every ruling elder um, has the time and resources to be able to, to, to um, study at the, at the intensity that teaching elders. I mean, even the, even the fact that, um, uh, you know, the ability to just read a comment commentaries on a regular basis when um, uh, a person's preparing a sermon is incredibly enriching. I mean, like, uh, it, it'd be like, well, if, if, if everybody had the time to do that, that's great. Unfortunately, not everybody does. I mean, I, I find, like, I've, I've read through the scriptures probably uh, at least 25 times total, you know, because I do it once a year. And it's like every time I go and have to study some new book for a preaching series or something, I'm like, man, I it's like didn't realize that's what Isaiah was talking about. I kind of had an idea, yes. but then you start, um, I, I did this short series on Isaiah, and I'm like, wow, this has all happened during Ahaz and this stuff and all that other, because, and, and so it's just... Um, so important to learn. I think that um, given the ability through LAMP or other kinds of resources that are online, it'd be good for 
people, you know, elders to spend some time uh, digging into certain topics. I thought I thought I had a pretty good handle on certain um, topics and really uh, studying them in seminary. I really was like, wow, I never really thought about it like that. I mean, it came quickly for me, more quickly to me than others because I had been re- reading it a lot. You know, I have uh, uh, ha- I think I had a little bit more natural aptitude for it, but when you're when you're actually spending an entire semester thinking about you know Christ you know that's you you there's something there that you just get from reading all these resources or or even the process ever since I had to take Greek and um, exegesis all the process of how language works and all that other stuff um, even how to use who versus whom correctly. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I don't know that stuff is really fascinating and all these things over time just end up being uh you become more I think aware of how the world is pressing in on you and all, all sorts of other things the things that the 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 ideas that are out there and um that you become of more of more value to your your um not value but um you become uh, a, a more equipped elder for your congregation when you're able to do that if that makes sense because the, yes totally the things that are out there are very subtle um they're very uh there there's all sorts of ideas out there that have the appearance of wisdom and it's just the more you study the more you're able to kind of help people see well this is really the the you, yeah it's still true that um you know christian faith is very basic and all these other things may seem sophisticated but they're not they're not all that hard. I, I was just listening to uh, Todd Pruitt and um, Carl Truman talk today about things that were like really basic back in the day, like certain things that were just like, well, that's obviously wrong. And nowadays everything becomes like once once some new idea takes hold, then suddenly things become complicated. And what you realize over time is as you study more and more, you're like, well, things didn't become more complicated. We just have we have all these new philosophies that we can make them complicated that were some some ideas uh, and some some things are still wrong and and even the, the the gut reaction that people have to them is the right answer and and we just become convinced by things in our culture that things are are more complicated and subtle and just to have the ability to kind of see through those things and study through those things is really important Oh, absolutely. I mean, the um, they put a veneer on old things, but there's nothing new under the sun. It always amazes me how all the the ancient heresies are just they just come back around uh, and, and and rear their heads in new ways. But it's if you can identify underneath what the presuppositions are, you you can you can see what they are. Uh, for for listeners, you know, going to th- this wasn't about going to seminary. I mean, REs don't need to go to seminary, or to, you know, you don't have yeah, time yeah, to take absolutely. classes. It's but read a book, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know what I learned is early in my in my Christian walk, I was reading a lot of um, a lot of garbage, honestly, mm. uh, that I thought was Christian books, and we yeah. would just go into the Christian bookstore and say, "This looks good" or "That looks good." Read, you know, find books by. Uh, reformed thinkers, Presbyterian mm-hmm. thinkers, the Puritans, you're not going to go wrong with. Right. And, um, you know, and, and, uh, and I would say read books about ecclesiology too, like why we believe what we believe. Uh, if you haven't read the Westminster Standards, you, you need to read the Westminster Standards and you'll be surprised at how rich they are. And you'd be like, oh, there's the answer I was looking for yeah. on this question. I'm always, always amazed at how 
uh, the Westminster standards have all the answers we we really need on. A well, lot of I mean, and you know, it, it, of course, the Westminster standards have you know, are, at least for the things that they discuss, they're very profound. It's interesting in yeah. these successive study committees that we have done. Some people say, like, like in in two of them, even on the the latest one on on abuse in the church. Uh, uh, and prior to that, the sexuality report, they're like, hey, we found everything we kind of needed in terms of the structure of the theological arguments in there. And in there, to yes. some of them, I wanted to say, really? You, you think? <laughs> you know, it's like, right. I mean, it really, I mean, you know, uh, that that's kind of one of the things that kind of irritates me sometimes is that um, it's kind of the, the theology of the first glance. Um, and I, I'm, mm. I'm kind of surprised um, without naming names, that there are some really uh, popular thinkers that have been parts of seminaries that they're, they, they are very, I guess what I would call it lazy when it comes to historical theology, where they just read on the surface, well, this is what it says, and these guys are knuckleheads. Why would they use that as a proof text and that sort of thing? It's like, did you take time to understand what they're trying to say and actually critique them on the basis of what they're trying to say? Um and I think when you, it's not that the the, the people that came before us were um, infallible and they didn't, you know, they may have made some mistakes, but at least give them credit for not being complete dummies, you know, like, well, why would they say <laughs> that? That's so legalistic. It's like, right. you think they were trying to be legalistic or maybe there's more to it than that, you know? And so... Um, I've just found that uh, it's better to kind of especially dig in and try and figure out, um, you know, what they're trying to say. And, and uh, yeah, the standards are so rich in, in even just the way that they treated um, the, the, the Ten Commandments in terms of the, the whole exposition on that. In fact, um, I was, I, I forget which one I was listening to. I think it was uh, Beaky's, um, he's got a really good series. I, it's no longer on the internet, but I think I downloaded it before it went away. But he did an entire series on, you know, the Westminster standards and things that were going on at the time. And, and, um, you know, pastors used to come together in the assembly and try and deal with the more difficult issues and then discuss those, you know, because they didn't treat the, the 10 commandments like the Jesuits that said, you know, like, Hey, if I, if I touch her there, is that, adultery whatever you know kind of like can i do that and isn't it and then you know that's kind of the roman catholic mm. way that's that's a venial sin okay you can go that far no further that was more principle based and they would they would take the thornier cases to cambridge and they would discuss these but they they would write these very uh. complicated and what complicated um or they would try to, to at least dig into the scriptures and really try and think through these things i think in a way that we um we often don't do and and it's it's good to go back and at least give those um ideas you know a second look yeah well so you talked about the two aic reports that are recent so you're absolutely right and you know i used to love these committee reports a few years ago and now i'm i'm becoming a little curmudgeon about them because of all they're doing is regurgitating the standards. And I just wish we had a greater appreciation for the standards, but even I had to get there, but like the, the whole discussion on human sexuality and indwelling sin. I mean, that's just the Westminster confessions teaching on um, original sin and, and, and sins that are actualized as a result of that, but both being rightly sin and, and the doctrine of sanctification and how that works. It's all, it's all in the confession. And then you're right. And I think that was, 
um, strategic on the abuse committee's part, and I don't say that in, in strategic in a nefarious way, but I think they wisely defined abuse, uh, at least they attempted to, in the terms of how the the standards, particularly the larger mm-hmm. catechism, looked at what the Ten Commandments, uh, our understanding of them, teaches with regard to superiors and inferiors as far as... Right, the duties uh, of superiors, exactly. Yeah, and even on truthfulness. My, I, just to be clear, I was not, um, I wasn't criticizing the committee reports per se. My, no, my main no, concern is that I, I just, I think that there's a lot of elders that um, take no exceptions to, to a lot of parts of the standards, and then they discover the things that they never took exceptions to. Like it's like they didn't understand <laughs> right. that they were actually. Oh, that was in my. That was actually what that thing was saying, and and so it's it's hard to to to, you know, verify whether or not people are objecting to things that they still don't understand. Um, I think my my concern about study reports has to do with. Actually, I was part of the um, uh, the overtures committee when when I I said I want to. St- I, I, I supported approving the study committee on on human sexuality, at least coming out of the overtures committee. And I, I told the men there, I said, I know some of you um, that were disagree on things, and I know some of you personally, and I have you know friendships with you. And I'm going to remind you later when this comes up that the, what we like to do with study reports is that when we when we agree with them, we treat them as if they're canon law. It's like there's three views of creation in the study reports. Therefore, the Presbytery shouldn't even ask about them because we've made a decision. It's already come down. It's ensconced. And when we don't, when we don't disagree, or I'm sorry, when we don't agree with them, then they're pious advice. And, <laughs> you know, if we want to have deaconesses, we're going to have deaconesses. If we're not going to ordain male elders, it's just pious advice, you know. And so um, the thing I think that I think that irritates me is what I would consider to be um, kind of treating uh, reports as if we are no longer have to think through things or no longer have to use wisdom, where it's almost become now a uh, another canonical um, deliberation from the PCA that... Um, we don't police language, you know. We just, hey, we don't police language. It's like it says I, that I was in the just study report. That. It's like we 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 went and studied, and and somehow or that's the most important thing that that came out of the study <laughs> report, um, not to remind us. And it's good that we have things about the um, uh, in there that remind us of our standards. But that's the the heart of it. But then people will uh, levit or you know hone in on that, and you're thinking, well, it seems to me like how we use words is probably one of the most important things because we're a people of the word and in, in how we communicate. And, and, and so what we do is we use things um, as levers, as, as ways to, um, you know, to not think through things or not to debate things anymore because we've already had something that was supposed to be pious advice and we're taking a, a clause and turning it from pious advice to, um, you know, something to which, you know, at least in certain quarters means we no longer even have to worry about what people say because we're not, we don't police language. As an example, I know I'm being extreme as all I'm, I'm trying to say is that I just wish that we would actually, um, you know, think and act like elders more than just kind of sound bites at times in using those things as sound bites. Well, it, and it is a, it, it honestly is a, is a heart of legalism under the the veneer of of antinomianism (laughs) i mean it's like it's like to look for a loophole to allow to do 
what you can do. And it's, I mean, I don't think you were being, uh, I don't know what word you used, harsh or whatever, but like, as you were talking before you mentioned it, that was exactly what I thought of this. So we have a, a 48 page study report on human sexuality that outlines very in-depth things about language and identity and sanctification right. and sin. And there's one clause that says we shouldn't police language. Mm-hmm. And that one little clause that says we, we, we shouldn't police language is now being used to undermine the entire report right. such that a person <clears throat> can always speak in ways that undermine identity and um personhood and sanctification and everything, but because we're not going to police language. And this is my issue with sort of to jump from there to somewhere else, but like with the whole tiered system of doctrines, Mm. when, when you put things into a third tier that can then undermine the first two tiers, (laughs) they're no longer a third tier issue. You know, (laughs) do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that, um, uh, actually, I think I've, quoted this too but charles hodge has a really good um uh article it's actually in the pca history uh dot org i think it's in the this day uh i think uh somebody quoted it in extent charles hodge's like these are kind of the core uh fundamental doctrines of presbyterianism the funny thing not the funny the interesting thing about that is he focuses in on really what it is that's at the heart of what's distinctively reformed and I think actually, if we followed that, we'd actually be in really good shape as a denomination. But the fun, the interesting thing is, he leaves out like infant baptism from that because he says that's not actually distinctively reformed. There's other communions that are like that. But the point oh. is, is that it's not that there's, it's not you know like it's not that there are things that are uh, aren't closer to the heart of those things. It's just that I think what um, people want is they want to not have any kind of sense of what we are is like saying, if we're Presbyterians, okay, um, there's actually a health in saying, if you're going to call yourself Presbyterian, then you should be you should be noticeably Presbyterian in certain convictions. And to say that, um, you know, I couldn't think of a, a less uh, central doctrine than the form of church government to divide over that if that was all we were dividing over like that we believe in elder rule versus something I couldn't support being having schism over that one thing I, I hopefully I don't offend other people but that's not nearly the, the, the close to the core of the Christian uh, doctrine as other areas are um, but the point is is that you know there is there is health and unity when a body can get along and identifiably in terms of what they're about, um, in terms of what they believe, and that's the reason we don't um, we don't have Baptists in our communion because we're healthier as a Christian church as a whole for them to be separate from us as still part of the Christian church Catholic. And I think that when we're trying, what, what, what usually those things are more about is saying, well, I'm kind of being bothered by the fact that. I don't really like, you know, some people don't really like these things that don't really kind of accord with sort of historically reformed ideas. And then people say, well, let's kind of tear this so you can recognize that this isn't that important. And then we'll be able to get along if you can just kind of hold on to these these convictions a little um, uh, a little less uh, stringently. And it's like, well, 
no matter what you do, you're always going to, as people continue to study uh, what the confession's saying, as people see how these are all connected, you're always going to run into that friction. And it's better that you understand why that friction exists rather than convince people that it doesn't matter because inevitably you're going to run into people that like study these things and, and become more mature towards these things and realize, well, this is the reason why we don't do this as Presbyterians. And if you want to, then there's plenty of, we're not going to unchurch you from the church Catholic, but maybe you're better off in a place where you're, you're, you know, your, your convictions are better served and there's no friction, you know, in, in holding to them, if that makes sense. Right. Right. And, and people will call that schismatic or sectarian, but it's not, it's, it's, no, it's, it's, we choose, we voluntarily choose to align in a tradition that conforms to beliefs we agree to. Mm -hmm. And, and I am, again, I, I, a lot of my spiritual formation came through John MacArthur. I, I, I disagree with him on a lot of things, you know, and I'm glad we're a part of different denominations where right. we can uh, acknowledge differences, but still say he's a brother in Christ. So I got two more things I want to talk to sure. you about if we got time. Uh, one is music. And, and I was surprised to hear or see online that you're a musician and you are into uh, using hymns that are rearranged into more modern arrangements, but but music is is on your heart. So do you play as part of the the team uh, on Sunday I, mornings? I and... do sometimes. I um, we have enough. Actually, if we're a relatively smallish church with about a hundred communicant members, we have quite. A, we've got a lot of talented. Uh, people in our church two of them are like uh, retired marines that were part of you know like marine band not the marine corps band but you know just band members and so they've got a lot of musical talent um you know actually one of them said you're one of like he said you're one of the most talented people that i know that doesn't actually know music you know, like the theory of music really well. Like I've never, I've never studied, I understand what scales are and things like that, but I've got, I've always liked good music. I learned to play guitar from a Catholic nun when I was a freshman in high school. I think it was 1982. And then I just kind of learned chords and I never learned how to do really cool things, but I can do stuff with picking chord, you know, picking and uh, strumming is kind of where I, you know, add um, stuff to it. And, um, Contra some others uh, who shall not be named. I love a leading worship with an acoustic guitar. I think it's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> but um, no, I uh, I really I I just enjoy uh, uh, music. Obviously, it's not for its own sake. I don't I don't like um, I'd never have liked like um, long instrumentals in the in the middle of service. Like you know, in fact, if there is kind of a uh, uh, instrumental between verses, I try to shorten those because I think we're, we're supposed to be, you know, facilitating congregational singing. But I, I like, um, I like congregational singing around songs that are, um, I don't know, nice to sing. I don't know how else to describe that. So, you know, we don't, I've never really written a song, but we, you know, I'm not usually the one picking songs as much as, you know, like, you know, we, we've got a lot of stuff from, uh, you know, Indelible Grace and others out there are just good songs that we like to play. And, and um, you know, um, I've always been a singer and even done some musicals and stuff like that. So I enjoy doing that. And my kids are singers too. So now my, my daughter um, sings during worship and my other daughter, when she's around, she'll play piano and sing as well. So, yeah. 
So you're you're a poet warrior. I mean, you're a singing I don't know about marine, poet. So. I'm not really. I don't know that I really <laughs> create art or anything as much as just enjoy it. If that makes sense. That's. In fact, that's, a lot of times great. the funny thing is for me, I've always kind of been more musically like inclined than lyric com- inclined. Like I I mess up songs all the time. My my roommates used to laugh at me because I'd be I'd be singing the wrong lyrics to songs because I'm just listening so much to the um, uh, you know the the song that I'm I'm like singing the wrong lyrics to the song when I'm I'm usually singing them and people make fun of me for that. Yes, I've seen parody videos on YouTube about like '80s songs that we yeah, all thought exactly. said one thing and they were something else. Well, I, I had myself. no excuse. Like the one one time, one of my <laughs> my my uh, uh, like this is a this is a song or if he knew the right words, but my roommates heard me singing way down South. Let me hold you in my arms. And they said, what did you say? Way down South. <laughs> let me hold you in my arms." And it was like so wrong. And then, but it's, it's, they used to just constantly like, because that's what I heard. That's all I knew. I was like singing the wrong, wrong lyrics, but that's an example of how I am not a lyrics person at all. Gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, you mentioned your daughter, I think. Uh, tell us something about your family. Uh, I've got five kids. I've got a son, James, who's 20, wow. um, daughter who's 18, now at Virginia Tech, 16-year-old uh, Sophia. She's at a local uh, Christian school. And then Calvin is 14. He's also uh, at a Christian school. And then um, Christian is 10 now. And so, yeah. Um, and my oldest is on 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 the autism spectrum i mean highly functioning but that's always that's been a challenge throughout our lives just trying to keep him motivated and um you know not discouraged by his challenges but he's doing well in in um, junior college and that sort of thing just kind of looking to see what what the lord will provide for him as a vocation oh that's that's great and and uh how long you're married and what's your wife's uh, name let's see 26 years and my wife's name is sonia Great. That's awesome. Well, Rich, to, to wrap this up, uh, well, actually, I, I, by the way, I'll tell you. So my, so I'm married uh, 18 years. Awesome. I hope that's right. Seven, <laughs> 17 or 18. <laughs> uh, 2004. You have to edit I know that, that later so you, you're confident. Y- yes. Six, is that six, 18 years? I can't remember now. Um, it was just last month, too. Sorry, Susan. My wife's name is Susan. Uh, we were, she, I always say she was the, the high school sweetheart I always wanted to have. Um, but we, we didn't date in high school and 10 years later we, we ran into each other and we're married within a year. So, uh, and then my kids are, some of them are in your age range. Adam is, is, uh, 15. Ariel is, uh, uh, 13, 14, 13 or 14 and Asher's, uh, 11, 12, 12. He's 12. Yeah, you know, I, I'm not good with that, with the ages. So so I know the grades, 10th, 8th, and 6th. Mine all become even um, or odd at the same time, so it's easy. I just That's amazing, actually. I couldn't, Calvin's about to turn. I mean, I only had Calvin's a about few... to turn 15, so that's the thing that flips. He's December 29th. Everything then becomes odd after him. Oh, wow. Look at you, man. I That's amazing. And I was a math teacher, but I can't keep it straight. And you got five people and a wife you can keep straight. Well, that's... <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, so uh, last thing, Rich, and this is a, I, I don't know if it's a, it's definitely a personal thing, but I remember a couple, maybe two years ago or one, you, you told the group, the Facebook group that you help uh, 
sort of moderate that you're having vision problems with your mm-hmm. eyesight issues. And I don't know if you want to share some of that. I'd like our yeah, listeners sure. would love to hear I about mean, that and how we yeah, can pray I had, for you. Yeah, uh, I, I have Stargardt's disease. It was, I'm actually, when it, of people who have that disease, I'm actually uh, blessed that it didn't affect me in my teen years or, or early on in my 20s. I wouldn't have been able to serve in the military. A lot of people lose all their central vision from it. It's a form of macular degeneration and the, the macula is ah. the part of the the retina that um, that actually sees detail. So you you've got peripheral vision. So the the vision are around you, the things that you can see. But then at the center of your vision, where which you use for reading or to be able to see things, you know that's where you get all your acuity um, is actually the, uh, the macula. And what happens is that the macula kind of uh, that area just kind of the the cones there just kind of die out, and you lose the ability ability to see. Um, contrast in that area so i i look directly at people in order to be um uh what's the word i'm looking for um um I don't know, polite, Focus. but I can't see their face oh, okay. when I do that. I have to oh, okay. look above. I have to look above their th- th- to see their face, and so um, and and towards that end, I can't because of that. I end up using a lot of magnification for things. I do mostly text to speech, which which as actually has allowed me to read a lot more because I can. I, once I've learned a lot more text to speech, I can listen to things a lot more because I'm running or I'm like just doing chores or I'm doing something and I, you know, I listen to, you know, uh, systematic theologies or whatever. It's a lot easier to do that when you're driving or doing other things than sitting still and trying to read those things. But, um, yeah, so I, I just kind of deal with it. It's, it's frustrating. Um, you know, I, I, like sometimes during movies, I, can't keep track of who's who and like i'll be in the middle of a movie and i'm like oh that's matt damon i never realized it you know and or something like that you know i can i have to get up really close to see things and so um i do you know thankfully i have special glasses i can use to sight out and be able to to still drive and be mobile but it is frustrating because it was kind of one of those slow progressing things from about 2007 when first diagnosed to uh, really within the last three or four years to where um, it affected where I could see around it in my left eye, the right eye had gone faster, but I could still read things and then then it eventually went away. And so now I just have to, you know, use a lot more magnification and it's it's frustrating because it's a kind of visual impairment that when you tell people you don't see very well, they think, oh, you're either blind or you're not, but then um, it, it can lead to kind of embarrassment because people that you've seen for a while you reintroduce yourself to people at church because oh are you here oh and then you get close and realize oh yeah sorry i i know who you are i i remember you i just couldn't see your face you know so it's just hard in that regard but you know as um as a handicap to have it's not the worst one in the world at least i guess yeah, when you when you first discovered it, and even as it's gotten worse, any uh, and you don't have to answer this, but any frustration with God? No, no, I you know it's funny. I I I mean, my wife and I and family have gone through a lot of suffering. I mean, uh, I and I I almost don't feel I've never really felt like a um, I've never really felt like it was appropriate to blame God for anything. You know, I don't know what what it is. I've just never really felt like um, in all my life that sin and suffering was anything other than I, I just never really it never occurred to me to be angry 
with God for things, if that makes sense. My wife uh, yeah, lost no. her lost vision in her eye uh, a few years ago. We found out she had MS, so she's struggling with MS. My son has wow. type one diabetes. You know, we we have a lot of struggles, um, but I never, I don't, I don't know what what it is. Um, I'm not saying that I'm like a a rock or something like that, a virtue or anything. I'm just saying that like you just end up kind of like getting used to it, and then you like this stinks, but and then you just kind of get through it, but you never really, it just doesn't occur to me to ever blame God for, for the fall, if that makes sense, or all, that sort of thing. No, you know, Even I, when it, I was Roman it Catholic, does... it never occurred to me that I would just be blaming God all the time for things, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. And I don't, I don't even think that's super pious. I, I get that. I, um, so I, I actually have two different clinical diagnoses on my ears one is Meniere's disease and another one's eustachian tube dysfunction and I'm not clear if it's not one or the other but it causes bouts of vertigo nausea um loud ringing and uh it seems like I mean a lot of things affect it even like uh, sodium content in my in my food oh wow uh, elevation changes and weather changes can affect so like today I woke up my my head was just spinning and my ears were ringing you know wow and yeah, it's it, you know, and, and I don't. It's not like I I just you got to go on with life, you mm-hmm. know. It's it's not uh, most people don't most people don't know. Obviously, you know, if I say it, they know. But um, what it what it did was early on because I've had I've had this for uh, fifteen years now at least probably. What it did early on was like I I was I I don't think I was ever angry with God, but I was frustrated. I wasn't able to do the things I wanted to do when it when it had me laid up at times, mm-hmm. and and then I realized like, well, if God has me going through this, it's not because I need to be doing something else. Like he's he's working, and I need to rely on Him mm-hmm. right now, you know. Mm-hmm. And what it what I found that it did it really made me more compassionate for others that deal with uh, chronic pain or uh, health issues or disease or, yeah. or whatever yeah, and so that's true. That's uh, a good point yeah as i guess as we are wrapped up or wrapping up is there any final thoughts or words you want to share no i we appreciate the time i i wasn't sure where it was going to go uh i hope i don't regret anything i said in retrospect and i <laughs> i hope that uh, everybody you know found this valuable and, and insightful i just think uh you know being an elder is both at the same time kind of a a burdensome kind of thing but also a very rewarding kind of thing it's it's been uh not uh, i wouldn't say anything about it it's ever been easy there's been times when it's it's much harder than others in terms of just dealing with um you know, uh, uh, people that just tell you you don't know what you're doing, but also combined with the fact that you see in yourself human sin and the fact that you're a sinner, um, that's part of the reason why I've never really felt like angry at God for anything, because I know I'm a sinner. It's like, man, I'm just glad that he accepts me because I see so much um, blackness in my own heart. And that contributes to the fact that I kind of uh, don't ever uh, try. I try and remind myself as an elder not to take myself too, um, you know, seriously in terms of the things that even people say to compliment me on things because I see in myself so many failings and so many areas in which I could be um, doing better in. But it's it's a it's a tremendous privilege to be able to shepherd the flock of God and to to kind of see things happening and and to be part of that process. And so, just want to encourage people um, 
to who are looking into it to pursue it as a godly thing and also to be reminded that it's a serious thing and so you know do it with zeal and do it with um you know confidence if that makes sense oh totally that's a great way to wrap up and i i just love what you said the way i, I said it to, to somebody today that you know, dealing with some issues in the church and um, some tough shepherding cases that of people that, you know, humanly speaking, you might want to be upset with, like, what it really does is it reveals things about my own heart. <laughs> so as I'm trying to shepherd and disciple people into uh, what the Lord would have for them, it's, it's revealing areas of my heart where I'm not believing the gospel, where I'm not loving people well, where I'm about George first, and, 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 and I hate that mirror, and yet yeah. it's so necessary. Yeah. So... Good word, Rich. Well, thank you. And yeah, thank for our you. listeners, if, if sure, yes. And if uh, if you are a ruling elder or a teaching elder uh, on Facebook, there's a group, P-C-A-R-E-N-T-E group. You can find it. You need a request, permission to be a part of it. Uh, I, I would say that the discussions and debates can get lively and sometimes uh, they're all private. So uh, sometimes they're more lively yeah. than people are ready for. So I would say join the group and observe and get to know people. Um, and, uh, I, I think, I think it will be okay, but I, it's been a helpful group and it definitely has united a lot of us in, in friendship. So, uh, thanks again. And, uh, this is pastor George signing off from the Presbyterian reformed churchman. And I think this is going to air, uh, right before the New Year's. So Happy New Year to, to everyone. Looking forward to 2023 and what God has for us. God bless.